it where you're walking into a room and meeting some new people and immediately from the first 30 seconds of a conversation, it's almost like you can see it in their eyes that they're starting to form this idea about who you are based on you know, hobbies or interests, whatever it is that you say, maybe how you say it. They, they start to like picture you as a person. And over the course of that conversation, it comes very quickly that their idea of you as a person and how you think of yourself as a, these are two totally separate people. And so you, you start to like try to catch up and fill them in and say like, well, I mean, don't, like, don't put me in this, this box here. I'm actually this kind of interesting uh, person. For example, I meet people and they hear, uh, oh, cool, right on. So you, you work for a church. And there's this um, like two-track reaction that people have to that. Um, sometimes they hear that and uh, they respond rather positively. Sometimes not so much. Tells a lot about someone. They hear, not only do I like, work for a church, okay, so you're a pastor of a church. You're a pastor of a new church that just started, that, that just really exists to, to, to reach out to people who actually don't even like church that much. Awesome. You know, the chip bowl is getting a little empty. I'm going to go fill that up right now. And I can just see it in their eyes. Like they have this idea of me as a person and they're waiting for the sales pitch to come on and they're just doing anything to get out of the conversation uh, before it happens. And I just want to say, like, you have this idea of me. I'm actually not that guy. I, I actually am kind of a, I'm, I think I'm fun and interesting and engaging. There's not going to be a pitch at the end of the conversation. And so I, I try to like run extra, like try to catch up, do this extra work to, to make sure that they know the idea of me and who I actually am are two separate people. And I just want to submit to you, that is exhausting. Sometimes it's on the flip side. They hear that, oh, you work for a church. That's cool. It's in a school. Even cooler, all right. And you know, the pastor, it's this new church that, you know, exists. And they start to hear this and they start to like figure me as a person. And they're like, the, the idea that they have is this like cool, hip, trendy, awesome church and a cool, hip, awesome, trendy person. And they're like, so you're the, the guy who wears the trendy skinny jeans and the ripped shirts and the big glasses. And I'm like, ah, I actually feel more comfortable in a golf polo most of the time. Uh, that's not really me. And I can see the, the picture of them as me as a person and, and who I actually am are two totally separate people. And I'm running to catch up and it's just exhausting. Now, chances are uh, you probably don't have the, the same thing going on, but I'm, I'm guessing I'd be willing to bet that you've had something similar happen where you've been put into a box and people think that you're this certain person and you're running and trying to catch up and it's just not happening. People see the little 26.2 sticker on the, the back of your car, right? And they kind of like bump into you and you're going, marathon, very nice. Like did one of those myself. You know, how are you feeling around like the 18th? And before you can tell them it's my wife's car, they like start, <laughs> start to have this idea. Like you're, you're like watching the Olympics, doing sit-ups, um, eating popcorn. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm actually more the like law and order, lost kind of uh, chips, nachos kind of guy. That <laughs> who they think you are, who you really are, separate people. And it's exhausting trying to sort out, trying to make up that difference there. Sometimes it's like work, sometimes it's uh, athletics or recreation, whatever it is. I just can't help but think of the girl who's just, from the very first 
grade she got in school. I mean, she, was, she was cursed with doing well. I mean, it came back, and it's 100%. It's an A. And, and the reaction that she gets from friends, from mom and dad, from doting aunts and uncles who just encourage her and love that about her. And, and it's almost like a drug that's addictive, and she just lives into that. For so long, and pretty soon her friends just recognize her as as that person who does well. And that's great. Right up until the point where there's a new class or a new school. And the grade comes back and it's not an A. It is a vowel, but, but it's not an A. And now pretty soon the aunts, the uncles, the parents are, how are you doing? How's the new, how's algebra or, or how's writing or how's the history of whatever it is? Like, how's school going? And she has this realization that the person who I thought I was and the person that everybody else thinks I am were separate people and this is just exhausting trying to make up the difference. And unfortunately, this is something that we don't really actually grow out of either. Because there are certain systems in place in this world that even as an adult, you can grow up and, and get a job and buy a house and a car and go on vacation. And you can, there's systems in place in this world so that even if something happens and like financially, you're just wrecked. Except for the fact that there's these systems in place so that you can make sure that nobody ever knows it. That internally you can be struggling and you can be down and and things could just, the walls could be caving in around you. But there's these systems in place where people look at your house and car and vacations and have no idea that anything is ever wrong. And it can be months, it can be years that this goes on. And whether it's months or years, pretty soon it catches up going, I have been living this certain lifestyle. And I've been trying to like overstretch a little bit, a little bit until it's just so much. And I want to throw in the towel and give up. And I'm just tired of it because living like people who, like the person they think I am and the person I really am is tired and exhausting. Faking. A certain academic proficiency is one thing. Faking a a certain um, financial proficiency is, is one thing. When we come here, or if you're new here and you've been somewhere else, and you hear people talk about God, the Bible, and what he's doing, it's a whole nother level to try to be to be tempted to try to put on this mask and almost like fake this certain, if I could call it spiritual proficiency. When somebody shares a cool story and you go, yeah, I've got one of those, you know, I didn't know and God showed up and no, he, he's doing something in my, in my life. I mean, and faking it and lying and just pretending that it's fine and it's not. Months, years, maybe longer, it catches up. And the person that everybody around you thinks that you are and the person that you actually are are two totally separate people. And to try to fake it and make up the difference, friends, it's 
It's exhausting. And I want to tell you that I think God is rescuing us from this. I think God is, is implementing this, this rescue plan to, to bring us out of living this disharmonious life. And it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be the way that we'd prefer. But I just want you to follow. It's just, he's rescuing us. Trust that he's doing something. Um, we're going to go to a few places in, uh, in the Bible now. And we're going to do the, kind of this flyover of the, the book of 1 uh, Samuel. It's uh, finishing off. This is the last installment of um, an eternally long series called Sunday School Revisited. I think it's like the 12th or 13th installment. We're finally like, wrapping it up here. And uh, book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to take a look at, um, I'm going to call them like two case studies. Um, two different uh, people, two different leaders, two different kings in the book of First Samuel. And we're going to kind of see how God is at work. We're going to see how God is rescuing these people from this incongruous lifestyle. Uh, I want to start off by uh, talking a little bit about this uh, first case study of ours. Uh, name is um, name is Saul. And uh, before we get into the idea of the first king, we get like take a step back and look at what's going on in the landscape. This is the nation of Israel. They're starting their own uh, the country. They're, they've got houses. They've got vineyards. They've got a home. And they're looking around at their life, and they're looking around at their neighbor's life, and I can see one big difference. Everyone else has a king. I do not. Everyone else has a leader. I do not. They're looking around the landscape going, you know what? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a guy on a gold throne somewhere who had all the answers? I think it would be nice too. Problem is, they didn't, but the people wanted it. And I just want to like pull back the curtain a little bit and say this isn't so much about wanting a king. This isn't so much about just wanting a person on the throne. The problem here is that they had already signed an agreement, made a, a, received a promise from God to say, okay, you're not going to be like those other nations. In fact, I, God, am going to be your king. And so they, they literally like inked the deal. This is what Sinai, the Ten Commandments, was all about. This is the rules. God saying, I will be your king. You will be my people. Friends, this isn't uh, uh, getting a king or not having a king. This is a replacement story. And so God's mouthpiece, his prophet, Samuel, is trying desperately to convince the people, you don't want a king. Don't, please do not go down this road. And Samuel warns the people, and he's saying, see your vineyards, see your donkeys, see your cattle, see yourselves. All of it is not going to belong to you. He's going to take it. It's going to be his. You don't want to go down this road. And time and time and time again, the people say, we, we want it. We want to be like them. We want to have that guy. He's got all the answers. We just need to find him. We open it up, and there's a First Samuel, and it's chapter eight. Words are on the screen and on the back of your flow sheet. Um, chapter eight, verse twenty-one. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, and you can almost just picture like God throwing up His hands at this point, going, "Listen to them and, and, and give them a king." Then Samuel said to the Israelites, "Everybody, go back to your own town." Next verse. 
There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Ebiel, son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Um, first verse here, we see God is just like throwing up the same. They want a king so bad, just give them a king. If they want it badly, let's go down that road. Prove it firsthand. And then the very next verse, we see who their choice is. And just a couple notes about this. You got these like long names in there. Um, Kish, Abiel, Zeror, Becherath, Aphiah, Benjamin. I don't even want to say that we have to actually go through and figure out who these people are, but just to offer to you that the author of this passage knew who they were and felt it was worthy including in the passage. I just want to point out that these are important people and that Saul, at the end of it all, seems to be an important person. If we take the easy route, we just see the like, second phrase in that line, a man of standing. That's all we need to know, that this guy was, was credible. He was worthy. As handsome as a man as could be found anywhere in Israel, he looked the part. And he was a head taller than anyone else, literally standing head and shoulders above any other candidate. They're going to install him as king because on paper he looks like, like the best possible candidate for it. They're looking at who he is, his, his resume, his list of accomplishments, and they're going to see that this, in fact, is a guy that we want leading our nation. And I just want to say, on paper, I think if we're honest, we're right there with them, saying, I would have probably voted for him, too. Problem is, it does not take long before the entire thing starts to unravel. And what we see just a few uh, chapters later in uh, chapter 13, we're going to see the king, now Saul, is at war with one of his uh, neighbors, the Philistines. And they're, uh, they're just about getting ready to attack. He knows this is so. He's gathered himself a little army, and he's waiting for Samuel, the prophet, the kingmaker, to come by and offer up this offering to the Lord, and then they can jump in and go to battle. He's instructed, wait for me, I'm coming. The Philistines are are like right there ready and the people know this and they're not ready yet because they hadn't offered the offering. And so some of these guys in the army are starting to take off their armor and go home. Saul is seeing this and he's got a couple options. Option number one is jump in there, rally the troops, get these guys still fired up, ready to go. Samuel said he would be here. Option number two, go away with the sacrifice without him. Offer it up while Samuel is still a long ways off. Saul does number two. He offers the sacrifice just in time for Samuel to see what he did. And we see in verse 14, Samuel saying, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. 
I just want us to see in, in case study number one of Saul, on paper, he looked like an awesome candidate. Most of us, I would say, would probably have voted for him too. He just looked good. Except for God sees something in him and sees this, this heart of disobedience and he goes, you know, next time, next time it's going to be different. The unraveling continued to, to grow and, and it just dramatic proportions. I mean, the stories are almost so ri- ridiculous that you can see this person has, has lost his mind. Saul becomes just irrational in the face of this. And we can see uh, David, just a young kid at the time. He's a musician playing just to, to calm Saul down. And he gets so angry, so fired up at this, this kid musician. He throws a spear and tries to pin him to the wall. And rational people do not do that. David runs away in exile. And, and, he's, and Saul takes his army and pursues after him, trying to hunt him down to kill him. Meanwhile, the borders are imploding. He's losing ground. The the nation that he's charged to to be over is crumbling before him, and he doesn't care because he's become obsessed with killing David. And it comes to this point in one of the stories that Saul is is walking by. He's with with his army at the time. And uh, it's like they pull over to the side of the road, and, and he goes in the cave to take a little bathroom break and you know his eyes are it says the um bright uh you know from the bright sun and he can't see anything it's dark in the cave and so he like you know takes off his his robe or whatever to take care of business david is hiding in the cave with his entourage and so david comes by cuts off a little piece of his robe stashes it away saul goes outside and he goes saul king of israel if i wanted to kill you I would have done it. I had the opportunity. God knows how many more opportunities I'll have. Why are you doing this to me? Temporary truce before Saul picks it right back up again. On paper, the guy looked amazing. But there was this heart within him. And God says, next time, next time it's going to be different. Fast forward a little ways, get to chapter 16. God tells Samuel, next time it will be different. Go to this tiny town. I mean, Podunk, middle of no. Go to Bethlehem. There's a guy by the name of Jesse there. He's got some sons. I've picked one of them. He goes to the town. He finds Jesse. Jesse lines up his sons, biggest to smallest. He lines up his uh, his sons, most king-looking to least king-looking. He lines up his son, most accomplished, tallest, most impressive to least impressive. And he brings up the first one and said, this is my oldest just waiting. This is the one. And as he passes in front of Samuel, God says this in chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. 
people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You guys, you got any other kids? All seven pass in front of him, and God whispers in Samuel's ear each time, it's not him. It's not him. Jesse says, I got one more. Wasn't even worth bringing him to the party. That's how sure I am that this guy is not a king. He's the smallest one. He can't be trusted with anything but the sheep. So we, we, we sent him out in the field. Samuel says, we're not leaving here until he, he passes in front of me. Brother goes, gets him, comes, brings him back. David walks in front of Samuel and God whispers, it's him. The one after my own heart. Two case studies. Saul looked awesome on paper. David did not. Saul literally stood and figuratively head and shoulders above the competition. David did not. But we can see that there was this heart within David that that God said, when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to family, finance, faith, there's just something about his heart that beats in sync with mine. The picture that I'd like us to have as we go throughout our weeks is a stethoscope. I want you just to imagine the two people, Saul and David. And I just want you to imagine that what Saul looked like on the outside in everything that he had going for him, except there was one crucial difference, that Saul's rhythm was out of sync with God's, and David's was. You have decisions coming up this week. You have decisions about uh, career restlessness, about choosing majors, about parenting, about finance, whatever it is. You have decisions this week to take whatever impression like people have of you on the outside. <laughs> and it could be good ones. People could look at you and say, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but she does. And you could be the one that people go to you and say, like, what do I do about disciplining my kids? You could be the one that people go to and say, I'm trying, I'm spinning my wheels in the job that I have. What do I do to get ahead just a little bit further? You could be the one people go to for advice saying, I'm struggling with my marriage. I'm struggling with my kids. And people think that you're the one with all the answers. Well, but biblically, biblical answers or otherwise. You could be Saul. And on paper, it looks great. What does it mean to have a heart that breaks for the kind of things that break God's heart? What does it mean to have a heart that longs after the things that God's heart longs after? What does it mean to have your heart beat in sync with his. You could easily find yourself saying, 
but I'm not that guy. I don't have a heart like David's. I don't have a heart that just somehow beats in sync with God's and that, and that there's nothing I can even do to change it. I just follow after him. That's not me. To be honest, I feel a little bit more like Saul, like a sham, and it's exhausting than I do like David. David wasn't exactly a stellar dude himself. He got into a little trouble. Uh, Perhaps a Sunday school story for another time. Woman on the roof bathing in the buff. And he says, her, she has to be mine. She wasn't. He, He takes her in and long story short, he has an affair with her. And then tries to cover the whole thing up. Her husband ends up dead. She's pregnant. I mean, it's a tragic, tragic story. There's, there's no way around that. And you say, what? a heart that beats in sync with God's. It's not so much like the decisions on the front end are so pure and so perfect and are so wise all the time. The difference of having a heart that beats in sync with God's and having a heart that just honestly looks good on paper and that's all it's good for is what happens next. David is so utterly broken about this this sin, this transgression, that he comes before God and he pens those words that we heard as uh, as our first word this morning and he says, God, Create in me this pure heart. David acknowledging that there are times when it seems like his heart beats out of sync with his. But the difference is that he says, God, I need spiritual CPR here. Give me some help. Give me this direction. And God does. The difference between David and Saul was enough that looking at these two leaders, God says to Saul, your kingdom is no longer yours. I'm looking for someone else. And to David, he says, from this day onward, you will have an heir on the throne, an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise. And it's these little breadcrumbs along the way that so long later when, when people, I'm sure many of them even forgotten about that or just gave up on the promise entirely. But so many years later, when other prophets, we could call them, were traveling through and they get to this tiny town of Bethlehem, Podunk town, way out there. Nothing really going on. And they see the baby in the manger on Christmas morning. And they say, our king on the throne. Create in me a pure heart. It costs Jesus his life. If you're looking at 
your life, your finances, your faith, your family, whatever it is, and it's feeling like a sham, and it's just exhausting trying to catch up, maybe it's time to pray those words of King David saying, God, create in me a pure heart. Create in me a heart that beats along with yours. We just stand up. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly God, you are at work in our lives. God, even when we try to run away, even when we try to deny it, even when we try to get away, you are here. And you're knocking at our hearts, asking to come in. God, give us the courage to open it, to welcome you. Give us the courage to pray this week those words of David, create in me a pure heart, one that beats in sync with yours. Amen.